chapter 18, verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. And when Jesus noticed this, he said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, Then who can be saved? And he replied, what is possible for mere humans is impo- um, what is impossible for mere humans is imp- is possible for a God. The rich man comes, and his question is nearly identical to that of the legal expert of Luke chapter ten twenty five. And remember, the expert of the law came to him in chapter ten verse twenty five and said, "What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God?" And that was where Jesus basically like threw a question back at him to get him to answer. Then he asked another question. Jesus threw another question to get him to answer. But this time he set it up with the parable of the prodigal son. Or sorry, the good, he set up with the parable of the good Samaritan. And basically the idea is that the one who loves his neighbor sacrificially and compassionately with no regard to himself is the one that will inherit the kingdom of God. And who is the neighbor? Anyone you encounter. Regardless of social status, financial, gender, ethnicity, age, whatever. Now this guy brings the same question forward. What must I do? Remember when the other guy asked it, Jesus said, well, what do you think it is? And he says, well, love God and love others with all your heart. Or love God with all your heart, soul, or sorry. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, and with all your life. And Jesus said, likewise. Now, he says something different. This guy starts off by calling him good teacher. And Jesus replies and says, Why do you call me good? Only Yahweh is good. What Jesus means is the biblical definition of good. When we think of good, we're like, Oh, he's such a good boy. She's such a good girl. They're a good person. At least they're not a serial killer, right? Like that kind of a good. We're comparing them to other people that we think of not good. They behave correctly, therefore they're good. That is not the biblical definition of good. And we talked about this way back in Genesis 1.1 when God declared everything good. Good in the Bible is functioning the way that it was designed to function. Functioning the way that it is designed to function when God declared everything in creation good, he's saying that it's functioning the way it's designed to function. And when we use the word good in a moral sense, it does carry that idea a little bit because it means that we're saying you're functioning the way that you're designed to function. If you're loving your neighbor and you're loving God, that was the the way that you were designed to function. Therefore, you're functioning that way. If I'm stealing from you, if I'm lying to you, if I'm cheating you, then I I'm not functioning the way that God designed me to function. I'm broken. I'm flawed. And therefore, there's something wrong with me, and that's just the nature. So this guy comes up and says, a good teacher. And Jesus comes back, and he's not denying 
that he's good. He's not denying that he's God. He's getting the man to think about, do you understand what you're really saying? Only God is good. He never said, I'm not good. He never said, you inappropriately applied that word to me. He's saying that only God is good. Only God truly functions in a good, proper way all the time. Only God does what is right all the time. So when you call me good teacher, do you really understand what you're saying about me? Do you really believe what you're saying that I am good teacher? Therefore, the other thing that this is doing is helping them realize you're not good either. If only God is good, then you as an expert in the law who's united with the Pharisees who brag about all the time how good you really are and how you're definitely in, you're not good because only God is good. Therefore, you're flawed and you're broken just as much as anybody else around here. Therefore, this isn't just about having the law and being chosen. There's something more here. So then Jesus then says, you know the commandments. Remember, if this is about being good, you know the commandments. And the commandments are, and he quotes them. Now what's odd is Jesus doesn't actually quote all ten, and he doesn't quote them in order. He actually quotes the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Why is he doing this? Is he, some people suggest that he's quoting only his commandments because these are the ones that this man struggled with. Others imply that he's just quoting the commandments that are probably the most taught about in the culture with the understanding that by quoting a few of them, the few then represent the whole. And we, we do this too. Like we go like, well, we're nothing but flesh and blood. It's like, well, we also skeletons. And there's a bunch of other things there too. But we used a couple of things to refer to the whole. Could be that most likely he's just quoting these because these are the ones that most people think about. Um, and that he's then using them to represent the whole. So he says, do the commandments. Now the man says, I've, I've done all these. Now remember, the Pharisees are all about external. Like externally, I have not murdered anybody. Externally, I have not committed adultery and that kind of stuff. Now Jesus also made it clear way back in the Beatitudes, I tell you that if you have lust or anger in your heart, you are a adulterer and a murderer. So, but this guy's only thinking external because that's all he can think about because he's justifying himself before the public. And so he makes it sound like, therefore, I am good. The implication of this is powerful because Jesus made it very clear. Be very, very careful about how you use that title with people because only God is truly good. And if you're claiming that I'm good, then you're putting me equal with God. And I know that you guys don't like to do that. But then this guy says, I have met all the commandments. Therefore, now he's making himself good. He's saying, I am good, as if I'm in. And in the light of what Jesus just said, he is either intentionally or unintentionally said that I am completely righteous without any flaws. Now, that's very unlikely, because even the Pharisees know that they can't meet the law perfectly. You have to be... There has to be something seriously wrong with the wiring in your brain to actually think that you're absolutely perfect and you have no flaws. But perhaps he's saying that because he has an image to uphold. And that image needs, everybody needs to see him as good. And this is where Jesus hits him where it counts. And he says, sell everything 
and give it to the poor. Now we've already made this point that Jesus is not saying that you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor in order to get into the kingdom of God. This is a lot of people, a lot of Christians, have ripped this out of context and made it seem like that this is the rule for everybody. But this is not possible. Because in Luke chapter 16, verses 9 through 13, which we talked about already, Jesus made it very clear, or sorry, Jesus going to make, has made it very clear that you are to use your money to win and influence friends. If you sell everything away, you can't use your money to win and influence friends. Likewise, in Luke chapter 5, verse 29, and then later in 19.8, Levi in chapter 5, and Zacchaeus, who we'll see in chapter 19, will not sell all their poor money. Their tax collectors are extremely wealthy. And they don't give everything away to the poor, nor does God even expect them to Jesus, expect them to do that. And in fact, he uses their wealth in order to have banquets to invite even more people in to experience who he is. And so over and over and over again, Jesus made it very clear that wealth is not the problem. It is the root of many kinds of evil. It is a great temptation in our life, but it is not the problem. The other point that he's making is that never has he ever universally commanded everybody to give it away. And in fact, there's many commands on how to use your wealth for the kingdom of God, and he's never put a cap on how much you must have. For this man, this was his problem. See, Zacchaeus and Levi have a God moment in such a way that the wealth means nothing to them. Maybe the wealth never meant anything to them to begin with. Maybe they only amassed the wealth in order to make themselves look good to people because they desperately wanted other people's acceptance. And they thought that wealth is what would get other people to like them and accept them and that they would have a place in the culture. But once Christ accepts them, that they realize I am truly accepted and other people begin to accept them. They they didn't need the wealth, therefore it's not a problem for them. But for this man, wealth is what he wants. Wealth is what he's put higher than God. And so wealth is what he needs to sacrifice in order to have a right relationship with God. And so he is commanded to sell everything and give it to the poor because this will always be a problem for him. Remember Solomon? Solomon asked for wisdom, right? And God was so pleased with him that he gave him everything else he could have asked for. Power, money, and fame and influence. But did any of that lead him astray, really, in a true heart sense? No. What led, him, what led his heart astray was foreign women. Foreign women. Money was not his problem. He didn't always use it right. And he began to go astray with the way things that he did with money, but that was after the women already came into his life. When the women led him astray, he began to mishandle everything in his life. And so for Zacchaeus and Levi, money was not their primary kryptonite. For this man, it is. And so he is told to give it all up. But he then is sad because Jesus just struck a chord. He just realized, oh crap, I know that that's a problem. And he was self-justifying himself and making sure that everybody knew that he looked really good and that he was on the top of the scorekeeping But then Jesus pulled out this unknown card in the game and said, wealth. And he's like, oh, crap. And he walks away sad. Now, how depressing is that? He is the greatest teacher that has ever lived. He has God himself there. 
He has the means of being saved. And yet, wealth is something that he holds on so dearly to that he has to walk away from God. Because he's not willing to give it up. I know it's very easy to say, well, that's not my problem. But after everything I've just said, you should be able to transfer this. If you walked up to Jesus and you said, but I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, what, would, what, what point in his life would he take his fingers and push in on it and push hard? They would hurt. Is it, do you find yourself valuing the acceptance of other people more than your desire for Christ? Do you, do you find yourself valuing your need to just be successful? Not necessarily wealthy, but successful. To, to have high rankings and, and whatever you're doing, your job or your community, your lawn, okay? The, 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 the way that your house looks, the way that your car looks. Do you, do you find this need to, whatever it is, Jesus pushing on that and saying, that's what you're not doing. And all these other flaws in your life are symptoms of this thing that you've put as, if only I had this, everything would be okay. And that is becoming greater than if I only knew Christ better and more intimately, then life would be okay. And what, like St. Augustine said, this is a disorder love. And so all these parables, you need to put in the bigger context of what is your disorder love. What is the thing that you find yourself pursuing? And if you don't know exactly what this is at this point, there's a lot of books I can give you <laughs> to help you figure this out. And one of the simplest, easiest places to start is Robert McGee's Search for Significance. He has tests that you can take to help you figure out, is it a success trap that you buy into? Is it a, a need for significance? Is it a, a need for acceptance? And that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's another really good book called The Twelve Life Traps. And these are the lies that you buy into. But there's a lot of books. I teach a marriage and family class, and I make my students go through a lot of books on self-discovery and what's going on with them. And so then he goes on and he says this. It is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a camel trying to go through the eye of a sewing needle. A couple decades ago, something like that, don't quote me on the time, in my lifetime, they discovered this gate in Jerusalem, like an old, old, old gate. And it was nicknamed the eye of the needle. And it was a gate that they would send camels through. And it was kind of like a, um, a security check or a uh, metal detector kind of a thing. And they basically... There was a way to force the camel, like a weight, um, when the trucks had to go to the weigh stations and weigh themselves in there. And you have to have a base weight without all the cargo, and then they weigh, and they make sure that matches up. What they would do is they would strip all this luggage and baggage off the camel, and the camel literally had to like get down on its knees practically and go through this tiny little gate in order to get through. And it was a very difficult process for that camel to push its way through. But it was a way of like making sure all the baggage was off and forcing them to go through everything and that kind of stuff. And it's not fully understood why that helped them check baggage better. Um, but they did that. And so a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, that's what he's talking, right? Because once you understand something in the culture, it makes the passage make a lot more sense. They had said that this is what Jesus is talking about. The pr there's two problems with that. One, they discovered later that it was called the eye of the needle and used that way 
way after Christ, way after Christ. So if you've read about this and thought that, that was it, or some pastor taught on it, that's why I'm addressing this. They found that it was called the eye of the needle and used this way way after Christ. So it's very unlikely it was impossible for Christ to refer to something that wasn't being used that way or exists that way. The other problem with this is contextually speaking, he's making it clear that it's, it's practically impossible for a rich man to get heaven. A rich man who values his wealth, okay, more than God. It's impossible. He literally says it is what is impossible with man. Man using his wealth to get into the kingdom of God is actually possible for God, meaning that you think wealth can get you into the kingdom of God. You think good behavior can, but it can't. Only God can get you in. It is very possible for those camels to get through. In fact, it was built so a camel could go through. It was a difficult process. It's difficult going through airport security, right? But it's very possible because millions of people do it every single day. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't say it's, it's rough and it'll kind of make you inconvenient in your first world problems for a few minutes. He says it's impossible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. The implication is impossible. So that means, based on the archaeological discovery find happening way after Christ, not the discovery, but the idea that it was used that way, and the context, this is exactly what he's saying. It's a sewing needle and a camel. And these are two things that were very common to them. They used sewing needles all the time. Textile was a huge industry in the ancient world. And camels were very prevalent, like cars are for us today. This would have made every, everybody who says, well, who can be saved? Because remember, they've bought into the culture. The culture is telling you that if you're wealthy and healthy, then you're right with God and you're saved. It means that you are doing the right things and you are good with God and God has rewarded you with health and wealth and prosperity. So certainly they're all going to heaven easily, right? God has already proven that they're in the door by giving them all the great blessings of life. So when Jesus says it's impossible for them to get into heaven, they're all thinking, we're all screwed. Like they're the ones who have the sure end. This is what the Pharisees have been telling us our entire life. If you're blessed with health, wealth, and prosperity, you're saved. And now Jesus, this great rabbi, who I'm hanging on every word that he says, and everything he says seems to make sense, is now saying that even they can't get into heaven. We're all screwed. And Jesus' answer is, you're right. You're all screwed. It is impossible for you. And that's when Peter steps in and says this. Peter said, look, we have left everything we own to follow you. Kind of like, oh crap. You just told us, Jesus, we're all screwed and there's no way in. I gave up everything to follow you. And you're telling me that I'm screwed after giving everything up and sacrificing everything? This is like a huge existential crisis moment for everybody. Okay, He just dropped a bomb on them and they don't know what to do with it. Then Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. There is no one left. No one who is left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of God's kingdom who will not receive many times more in this age and the age to come eternal life. Jesus then uses that as a springboard and says, that's exactly what gets you into heaven. It's giving up everything for me. It's giving up the world. It's giving up your reputation. 
It's giving up your dreams. It's giving up your wealth. It's giving up your status. It's giving up everything for me. It's picking up your cross and denying yourself. It's crucifying everything on the altar. I'm going to take my dreams. I'm going to take my goals for life. I'm going to take my skills. I'm going to take my family. I'm going to take my money, my job, my intelligence, my emotional, everything that I have, and I'm going to lay them on the altar, and I'm going to sacrifice them all to God, and I'm going to allow Him to choose what to give back to me and what to keep. And whatever He gives back to me, I'm going to use that to love God and love others, to win influence friends and expand the kingdom of God. And every day that I'm going to work, I'm asking, how can I use my skills to expand the kingdom of God? Not just, well, I know I have to work in a conversation about Christ somewhere at lunchtime and, and get them introduced to the Bible and Jesus and have No, 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 no. It's, it's about how can I use my skills in psychology or in, in, in technology or, or in the, the, the block watch or in parent um, PTA, or in the nursing program, or whatever, how can I use that to make the world a better place, to expand the kingdom of God? If the whole point was to make the world look like the garden, then the question is, how do I make psychology look like the garden? How do I look like, make the world, the hospitals, look like the garden? How do I make big pharma and, and insurance and, and politics and psychology and, and, and the, the, the sanitation programs and, and, um, and construction work? How do I make this all look like God, the garden? How do I do it in such a way that it promotes life? Not cutting corners to cheat other people to gain power, but truly making systems that efficiently work and benefit people's lives and then expand the kingdom of God. And then they will ask me, how are you able to do this? How are you to think, are you able to think so rightly and to make these things work so rightly? And you would say, because this is God. He is the only one that is good. He's the only one that can make things right. And he works through me. And not only that, I'm fixing a broken world fixing a broken world. And it's not the wisdom of all your, 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 your manuals that are going to fix this. It's the wisdom of God that's going to fix all this. Now, granted, I'm speaking very generally here because there's so many professions represented. But the question that you have to ask yourself is, God, you are the expert in kingdom expansion, and you're the expert in all these fields. And I'm the expert in my field compared to Corey here. And so the question is, how can I take this principle that Jesus is teaching in the Bible, what it means to expand the garden, and combine it with my expertise and then the Spirit of God that is in me, and then allow him to answer the question in a creative way, what does that look like for me? It's not me just going to work and enjoying something that I do. It's not me just going to work and getting a paycheck. It's me going to work and expanding the garden, making this work as efficiently and as godly, as good as I possibly can make it work so that the world and these people will be better. And then Christ shines in that and people will see the kingdom as it functions efficiently on this earth and then they will want to know the origin of that. That's the, that's the best way. People will often ask you to tell them about Christ, 
when they see you functioning in a good way. When you are good. Now, that doesn't mean everybody. Some people will just hate you and, and, and beat on you. But most people will see you being good, functioning the way you're supposed to function, working in a way that it functions the way it was designed to function. And they'll want to know, how are you able to do this? And that's when Peter says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Now, he meant it more in the context when they hate you and you don't hate them back. But I think that applies to every context. What Jesus is saying is, if you give everything up and surrender to me on the altar, that's how you enter the kingdom of God. Faith. When you believe that I am more valuable and more worth your investment than anything in this world you could have put it into. Money, power, skill, intelligence. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. Not how blessed you are, not how skilled you are, not intelligent you are, but how much you have made Christ the object of your faith. And we know that. That's the science school answer. He's just putting it in a more soul-stabbing kind of a way. We're just like, put your faith in Christ and you'll be saved. And Christ is like, eh... I'm going to find that thing that you value the most and I'm going to stab it and push on it until it hurts and help you realize that true faith is when you're willing to sacrifice everything, even the things that you love the most, and put it on the altar and give it to me and trust that what I do with it is better than what you can do with it and that me in your life is better than that thing in your life. And when you're willing to do that, that's faith. That's biblical faith. That's biblical faith. Can we get there the minute we accept Christ at six, seven years old or 30 years old or whatever we were? When we first came to Christ, were we ready to truly like do all that on the altar right at the moment? No, because the only way we can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit until you become a Christian. And even when you become a Christian, it doesn't happen within the first couple of minutes because transformation and sanctification is a very long, painful, arduous journey. But what it does mean is that you're saying, I get that's what you want, and now I'm going to allow myself to be changed and sanctified by you so that I can actually make that happen. And yes, some things I'll be able to lay on the altar like that, and other things that will take me a few years, and some things that will take me my entire life, the day that I die to lay that on the altar. But every day, I'm going to pray and ask you to give me the ability to do it. And I will do it sometimes, and I'll take it back off the altar. <laughs> but I'm going to constantly seek to put it on the altar and allow it to stay in the altar unless you give it back to me. And that's sanctification. Christ doesn't expect any of this to be done perfectly. Because if he did, we wouldn't need him. He doesn't expect this to all happen instantaneously. What he does expect is that moment that you put your faith in God, do you really truly understand what that means you're dedicating your life to? What you're saying is that when I accept Christ, and this is where the church has failed, and I don't mean every single church and every single Christian, but the church as whole in America, that we thought, oh, if you say the prayer and say, I believe in Christ, you get a little stamp in your Bible, and that's when you accept Christ. And if I can point to that little sticker, literally or metaphorically, that's how I know I'm saved. I said the prayer. No, no, no. True salvation is on that day when you realize 
I cannot do this all at once because I'm not perfect, but I get that salvation is taking up my cross, denying myself and following him. And I am now dedicating my life and pledging my allegiance to him and saying, I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know how easy it's going to be. I don't know how hard the battle is going to be, but I am, I get it. And I'm going to pursue you as a greater love than anything else in my life. And any time, every day that I pray, I'm going to try to lay everything on the altar. And any time you come into my life and invade it, I'm going to seek to not push you away and justify why I should have this. And I'm going to try to give it to you. And that's what true faith and true salvation is. And the one who can persevere in that is the one who is truly saved, according to Peter and Hebrews and Paul and James. That's what Jesus is saying. Are you willing to give me everything? Are you willing to begin the journey of giving me everything? Does that hurt? (laughs) Yes, it does. It hurts me too. 